reflected in the questions that we ask and those which we don't ask, the achievements we measure and highlight, and those that we ignore, and the initiatives that we support or don't support. Changing our institutional cultures is critical to improving educational outcomes and addressing society's most pressing problems. So how can we change our fundamental attitudes about who can succeed and at what? One way is to embrace struggle. We must teach children that not grasping the concept right away is not the same thing as being bad at a particular subject. The most brilliant of minds struggle with problems. This is the essence of innovation and even the human condition. However, people in different cultures tend to frame struggle differently. And Western cultures too often equate struggle with weakness. Likewise, researchers have found that Western teaching styles tend to associate struggle with low ability, while Eastern ones tend to treat struggle more as a normal part of the learning process. So accepting struggle is just one of the attitudes that we should encourage. And he finishes this section with seven important factors in whether students being willing to take advice, listening carefully, disagreeing respectfully, and attempting to understand another person's point of view, handling, handling constructive criticism well, persevering, having fire in the belly, and admitting that you don't know or understand something and seeking help. Let's put Dr. Rakowski's words in the back of our minds. They're going to come up again. It's pretty normal to speak about Memorial Day and the ultimate sacrifice of our countrymen and women who served in the military on this spring Sunday. In our liberal tradition, it's not unusual to refer to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was born 223 years ago last Wednesday. Sort of as we observed Buddha's birthday here last Sunday. Now tomorrow, as Catherine said, my friends will lead a traditional Memorial Day reading of names service here at 11 o'clock. You may catch some references to Emerson in what I say here today, but I'm going to speak to you about change. Reverend Olson and I have been talking about change since I arrived in September, and since February we've worked on scheduling a time when I might reflect on my year with you. 
So this morning I'm going to address, address three questions that I've made intentionally short. Why am I here today? What have I been doing? And how is change an opportunity? I'm the second interim half-time director of religious education since the departure of Becky Brooks in January 2014. Interim staff positions are designed to ease the transition from one long-term staff person to another. In the past several years, our association has recognized that all professional churches in our churches, professional positions in our churches, not just ministers, have similar kinds of transitions, and there's a need for trained interim staff members. I took my interim training with a group of ministers, religious educators, musicians, and church administrators. And I was fortunate to do my project work with an interim minister and interim music director. So I gained a generalized view of the interim, and I tried to see church systems as a whole. There are five generally accepted tasks for an interim period. Coming to terms with history, discovering your unique identity as a congregation, helping leadership adapt, grow, and change, rethinking, rediscovering, and revitalizing denominational linkages, and a commitment to new leadership and a new future for programs for all ages throughout the congregation. I came to Baltimore after two years as the Director of Religious Education at Davies Memorial Church in Camp Springs. I've been a lay leader and a religious education teacher for over 30 years. Since 2007, I've been following a rather untraditional path in preparing for Unitarian Universalist ministers. My first career was as a postcard officer, my second career as an acquisition support program manager, primarily for Navy shipbuilding. I've served Unitarian Universalism at the cluster district denominational levels for over 20 years. I served on the Commission on Appraisal during the review of the principles and sources and during the study of the relationship between ministry and authority. What I was asked to do here comes down to three basic tasks. Having responsibility for the religious education program for children and youth, Reviewing existing policies and recommending policies that will facilitate the effective functioning of the religious education program and related activities of the congregation as a whole, including shared leadership with the ministers. And finally, the evaluation of children and youth programs and recommendations to the board for the future course of the program. I arrived. I had two weeks to prepare for the fall program. Then I determined the next steps for the interim transition process and planned a systems analysis approach. I was blessed.
less than three highly functioning committees, the Interim Director of Religious Education Transition Team, the Adult Religious Education Committee, and the Religious Education Committee for Children and Youth, as well as the commitment of parents, teachers, and other volunteers. The Adult Committee had the RE for All set up for the fall. Recky had recruited teachers and youth advisors and nursery care and preschool people. I just had to select curriculum. I based that on our seven principles and six sources. After background checks and training and embarrassment, we were ready to go. The interim community and I planned a series of cottage meetings using the neighborhood circles system as a starter point. Plus individual interviews, attendance of lots of events in other areas of church life. I've regularly attended board meetings, occasionally leadership council, day spring garden days, a dialogue on race and ethnicity, some interaction with associational affairs, stewardship, additional worship services. All opportunities to ask questions listen and observe while making good use of time here in Baltimore. I asked three questions during the cottage meetings and individual interviews. What is First Unitarian Church in Baltimore doing well with regard to religious education for all ages? And what has been done well in the past? What have been some of the disappointments and challenges of the past, and what are they at the present? And what hopes are there for the future? And what did I learn? I learned much about the history of the congregation, but I purposely limited my list to three issues which keep appearing. Tension around issues of authority, a limited vision of the future, and a short-term perspective. That's not a surprise. It's not a reason for alarm. But those issues do suggest that it's time to look at our culture, our vision and our mission. If we look back at the reading from Grabowski, it's time to think of a virtue of the Eastern cultures to work harder on the struggle as a normal part of our learning process. And in doing so, make some changes in our congregational culture. Attention around issues of vision and use of authority is the subject of the Commission on Appraisals 2013 report. Who's in charge? It's a report that looks like this.
The Commission concluded that our values are foundational to our understanding of authority issues. Don't we believe that it's important for ministers to be able to exercise authority? Just as it's important for lay leadership to exercise authority. Likewise, don't we believe that it's important for all members of the congregation to have a voice in the direction and ministry of the congregation? Now let's define culture as a set of values, beliefs, norms, and standards that are held by a group of people. We Unitarian Universalists have brought the challenge of authority on us directly because we've developed in the culture of the United States. That's a culture of individuals. From the 17th century, we religious liberals added the ministry of governance by recognizing the ministry of lay members of the congregation. From the time of Emerson, the center of religious authority moved from the realm of hierarchy to individual experience and personal authority. We've even enshrined individual religious authority and the free and responsible search for truth and meaning in our seven Unitarian Universalist principles. And when multiple individual authorities attempt to build a community together in a culture it's come to distrust institutional authority, tension, and conflict frequently arise. We need to define who should do what, who has the authority to do it. We need to be pretty explicit. Now, we define authority as the ability to influence and bring about growth or change in an institution. Or on the other side, the ability to block or derail growth and change. In governance and ministry, church management, Specialist Dan Koshkis defines power as the ability to make things happen by legal right or other compulsion. Then, authority is legitimate power and carries with it creative license. When the board charges someone to fulfill some aspect of the mission without specifying exactly how it should be done, it's delegating authority. And the power can be used in a number of ways in the congregation. Sometimes with legitimate authority behind it, and sometimes in opposition to legitimate authority. And where does that authority come from in the congregation? It springs from the relationships among individuals. And individuals in congregations around your home congregation. In a sense, the congregation is the ultimate source of 
ministerial and lay authority when it's grounded in covenantal living. In a cultural context which sees authority as a finite resource, we're going to struggle to define what will be the truth in our congregations. We might think that we're cooperating, but in fact, we may be hoarding power. So we fall back into the trap of guarding our power because we perceive it's finite and a precious and in doing so, we forget our principles. In such a con cultural context, it's difficult for congregants to grant power to ministers or other staff members. With growth in a congregation, the governance pattern often changes along with the role Staff. All of this leads to uncertainty about the decision-making process in the congregation. And those conflicts around authority can contribute to stifling membership growth. Newcomers, youth, people who have traditionally been denied access to power are particularly vulnerable and their voices are not heard when congregations try to deal with their conflicts. When a specific situation, a congregation filled with uncertainty and conflict is not comfortable or inspirational, newcomers are likely to move on. Members dedicated to Unitarian Universalism stay for a time to work out a solution to the struggle. The struggle? Another echo of philosophy. So I've not been talking about bad news. I've been talking about an opportunity to learn how to engage more effectively. And we find that there's a body of work and there are experts that can help navigate this path. In March, the three education committees got together and recommended to the board that our interim process should continue so that we can work on our issues. Our issues. I repeat the three things that we kept appearing. Tension around authority, limited vision of the future, and short-term perspective. I want to start or continue a discussion in the congregation about three types of changes, areas for changes, which might benefit the congregation and help move into the future. And I'll name three change areas, culture shift, governance adjustment, and strategic thinking. The three issues and the three changes 
have very complex interrelationships. But I see these changes as an opportunity. And I'll try to reduce some of the relationships. In this context, culture shift addresses authority issues through building relationships and making promises, behavioral covenants with one another. Don't we do this in every religious education class? Next Sunday, we'll see how successful Nancy Benjamin and the membership team have been in attracting new members through a strategy of working on relationships. Culture shift includes more cooperative models for power sharing and decision making. It would reduce the level of detail, for instance, in employment contracts for letters of call and allow more room for discussion and interpretation. Culture shift also in, addresses engaging new and younger members of the church in work which grows new leaders, thus building a future church community with the raw materials that are at hand. Governance adjustment addresses authority issues through an up-to-date policy and procedure manual, through delegation of authority to committees, to empowering programs to think out of the box, to dream together, and take risks within policy guidelines set by the board. Strategic thinking, third area, addresses limited vision for the future and the short-term perspective. Living from one year to another in a 200-year history. This is where the Committee on Ministry Bicentennial Survey and the work of the Mission Vision Task Force might help clarify how the congregation addresses the future. How programs and missions will be aligned and resources allocated. Bicentennial years are a great time to make strategic changes. What would they look like? A dream. The board would be smaller. Former members of the board will use their talents in other program areas of the church. The board would be a policy body rather than a liaison body. Program areas committees would be delegated authority through a program council to act to spend money within policy guidelines. The number of committees would be smaller. There'd be more direct communication among them. The board would set up task forces to address big issues. Leadership would be by consensus. The board would be younger and more diverse. Board meetings would be shorter. The executive committee would include the board chair, the program council chair, the senior minister, the administrator, and the money manager. These suggestions will help us shift attitudes, culture, and institutions so we can talk more directly about issues that concern us and lovingly and skillfully engage conflict. 
establish trust, authorize one another, balance clarity and flexibility in decision-making, allow power and authority to flow rather than just coloring within the lines. That will help bring agility and flexibility to making some of our dreams come true. But these are great opportunities for a congregation to build on its heritage by investing in the future of Baltimore through big dreams. It's time to make bold steps. We've done it before, just look at our history. We've made mistakes together before, and we will again. But what ideas do we have for this bicentennial? The more 